Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Just for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. What would Ida B. Wells' ideology about lynching? What, What was some of her quotes? Oh, well, Ida B. Wells believed in, you mentioned earlier about the the use of a a place, a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in all homes. Um, Ida B. Wells basically talked about, you know, how, you know, you can't go, um, you can't be cowardice. And uh, she uh, suggested the economic boycott. She went on her international campaign. And, Steve, when you said that you take someone like Ida B. Wells, Dan Duster, he was there, his family can tell you, they never became fabulously wealthy. Right? And what Ida B. Wells, when she went on her anti-lynching campaign, no, that's what I'm saying. So people can live with, you know, not being that. But when Ida B. Wells went on her anti-lynching campaign, because Ida B. Wells went on that campaign before Ida B. Wells wrote when she was still Iola, writing under Iola, right, when she was still her pen name, when she was – when she was um before she went on that before her free press i mean um free speech that was the name of her new, uh, newspaper the free speech once that um before it got destroyed you know Ida B Wells you know she was writing and then it got destroyed she went on her international tour and what Ida B Wells showed was that look lynching is not something that you know is like the what you tried to compare it to like the what happened in American West. Ida B. Wells said, "No, no, 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 no. We're in a place. That's mm-hmm. why when you read her Southern, I mean, Red Record, she says these so-called civilized Christians. She even said that the mm-hmm. that the that you know Samsons, I mean, the Lilas was tricking Black Samsons. And basically, what Wells is trying to do though is she did in her discourse and what these markers are going to do." Okay, so I see these markers are right along. I see Brian Stevenson before Ida B. Wells. She herself, you asked me about a quote on Wells. Wells said mm-hmm. she herself believed before her friends got lynched that maybe these right. black men were doing what they were called. She said, maybe, you know, I did it. But when this, when these people were lynched, oh, my eyes opened up onto the causes of lynching. And so even right. though this was a woman who said this in 1882, I mean, 1892, when she was in, 18, um, in the 1880s, when she was biting people's hands because they were trying to throw her off first class of comic with the ladies' cars. I mean, so Ida B. Wells was fighting in the 1880s, but here she is saying in 1892, hey, look, she sort of knew what this, you know, like um, the mistreatment of, of, of people because of their hue looks like, but she said she was still believing what the papers were saying about why they were lynching right. these men. And then she said, when this right. happened, and so that's saying mm-hmm. that now there's a marker in Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. where this call is mm-hmm. the, it's a marker that commemorates the, um, mm-hmm. the lynching of the men on the curb in the free speech marker that's near Lamoan Owens, 
where Ida B. Wells, you know, because that's the area that was her stomping ground, that part of Memphis. And so where Lamoan Owens, which is a black college, is there's a marker there that talks about that lynching. So for you, Leslie, you believe that that marker shouldn't be there because it's not the full because it doesn't talk about the full conversation. It talks about the marker. It talks about the grocery store that the men were at and that they were basically murdered. And so what happens is, so when I read that marker when I went to college and I read that marker and I was like, oh wow. I said, so this is what happens here. And so it put Memphis in context for me. And so what? So at in essence, what Ida B. Wells did was talk about a crime. And what what Brian Stevenson is saying is that look, lynching was a crime. This was not something because no. No, no, I don't uh, think I, I don't you, think I what you said is that. Okay, I want to say that what Brian Stevenson is trying to do with these markers is he's going against the mm-hmm. Donald Trump ideology and the Richard Nixon ideology of and the Ronald Reagan ideology of law and order. Because if you're not careful, when people are hearing that somebody is raping women in the community, I mean, you just had a whole election for the last two years, and people were calling people um, ethnic slurs and calling them rapists. And so when people hear that mm-hmm. rapists are running free, that, you know, are, are, and, and they're not being penalized, Bill Walls, do this, do that, do this, that type of rhetoric, if it goes right, unchecked. Let me just down. Look, I, I, and I appreciate your passion. I really do. Now, you talk Thank about you. Ida B. making an ev- 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 uh, ev- evolving, let's just stick with evolving, right, from one mm-hmm. train of thought to another one after her friends were murdered, right? Yes. Tell mm-hmm. the audience about Emmett Till's mom, Mamie. Didn't she have a similar um, revelation, and, and didn't she evolve? She had a similar mindset prior to her son. You remember the quote that she said? Well, I don't know because she said much. I just know that she, too, went to, I mean, she first was in a um, segregated school, but then she ended up, she went to um, integrated school. She performed well, you know, so her environment in her area was different. I mean, what quote are you talking about? The one that I'm thinking about is where she said she didn't think it was her problem. The, the, okay, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, when she, yeah, yeah she, because so, most people, right. yeah, they, they see it as, okay, hey, look. Right, right, and she and she was motivated by her own mindset that it, she didn't really think it was a major problem until it happened to her, and she wanted to reach the people who would like herself tied to her son being And I think that what Brian so, Stevenson is doing is very much the type of, hey, look, like, well, like no, no, you, no. like well, people... What, what 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 Mammy did was she was directly affected by it, and she well, hold on. used what, the ma- she used the mass media. She used the media, you know. The, the but she also media. used the body of her her dead son. Right. She said, she "Leave that casket open a, so they can see what they right. did to my boy." That's what and, she said. She said, so "Let's see. Right. Let the world see what they did to my boy." And right. so, and therefore. Okay. That I mean, but, but that that marker, to... that very important image of Emmett Till okay. in the Jet magazine that end up going right. public, that is pretty much right. like a lynching marker. And and it went public throughout the world and because it, it serves a, like a lynching marker. A, That's what Brian Stevenson is trying to do. Listen, if if it, it remains in that town in that community, stagnant, and if it only remains in the town where he was a victim, where he was murdered, then it wouldn't have been affected. That's all I'm trying to say. 
And that's what I'm, and I think that that's what that's what I've been saying the whole the conversation is this, is that what Brian Stevenson, you just brought up Mamie Teal, Image Teal disfigured face. So let the world see what they did to my boy. That but is an image, and that's what I was saying about what the markers, what markers do is just like I was saying about the granite of the Confederate soldier. It's an Instagram. It's a story. Yeah. I mean, an instant in every what is Pinterest. You see a picture, oh, so let me just, and your let, interests let me are supposed to be, you're supposed to be intrigued. You're supposed to be stimulated. And so, therefore, people who look at Pinterest, they see a picture, okay, and then they try to go and mock it. Okay, you know who's stimulated? And you mentioned Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump said in one of his very first rallies, he said, Get that guy out of here. You know what we used to do to him back in the day? You know, we would really, really let him have it. And he was conjuring up his his rally, his his supporters in the rally, to go back in time. And if you don't know what I mean by what we would do to him, let's go visit Brian's markers, and we'll figure out. What I, so when I say oh okay now I I don't think that I he said, ever. When I say second, all right, let me just say when he said in one of his other rallies. That maybe we should have the Second Amendment people deal with Hillary. What those markers are talking about is injustice, and what Donald Trump is trying to say. Well, I'm not going to say what uh, President Elect is going to say, but I'm going to say the Ball. images that are conjured Ball. up. The images that are conjured up are those that somehow they were justified. What these markers are saying is that none of these actions were justified. See, you missing a, that huge part of the story. It's not like, oh, we're going to go to the marker and we're going to basically see, you know, ooh, look at what we did. No, those stories, I mean, I've read the language on the markers. They are no one should be that. Not, oh, let's go. So I doubt that Donald, I doubt okay, that, right. I'm not going to say Donald, any any person who is anti, you know, a particular group or whatever, I doubt that they're going to go to any one of these rallies and say, oh, yeah, look at, I mean, let's go to there because that shows how brave and courageous we are. No, they're not going to do that. Let me, let me oh. respond. You said... The markers are symbol to say never again, and we don't want this injustice yes. to get out of the get out of hand, right? But today yes. we have justice is running rampant. It's running rampant with these unarmed black men being killed. You know, and and I'm because pretty it's sure because it's, of the silence, Leslie. It's because guess what? Because now you have a whole generation, my generation, and I'm going to say it. Anybody under fifty? No, anybody under fifty. They don't know. They don't know. An, they don't know. There was a, there's, a, there's an America that they don't know. And so what happens yes, is because there's a disconnect. There there was a disconnect. And so that disconnect is this is not anything that's necessarily new. It's not. But the, the idea is that it's the idea that the violence, right, this idea of, you know, like, uh, again, these, 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 these Michael Browns, these Trayvon Martins, you know, Okay. What's happening is that uh, these Jordan Davises, I mean. I keep telling you this. Now, let me just say this, Doc, and you mentioned his name at the very beginning, and I gave you an A-plus and a gold star for mentioning You mentioned Benjamin Quirles, and Benjamin's book has been, his audio book has been um, read on my show a few times, every chapter. And when we talk about Benjamin Quirles' book, when you talk about silencing and the reason why, 
we had the lynchings from Ida B. Wells' time to the lynchings to, that we're witnessing today is because of the Benjamin Quirles of the society, which I consider you one of them. Um, the Thank you very Quirles, much. That's my compliment. It, it is. The Benjamin Quirles are being silent. It's not that um, the violence is silent. The Benjamin Quirles, you people, you historians, you scholars, the people who have come through it and have lived through it, your stories are being silent. Your books. Okay, now what happens is that you just mentioned about the so, hello. So, but but I'm saying, and this is, all, and I'm being sincere about this. I would much rather have a marker of you in every black professor, black historian, in their books than to have a lynching marker. And, and I, I think that I most think of that us, society ignores us. I think society ignores you and your work. And that's the only time you get recognition is when you talk about things of like lynching and violence. And I say, if you were a Benjamin Quarles, we had to uncover his book. When I first started playing that audio book, it, I forgot even how I found out about it, but I couldn't find it anywhere on the Internet. It was nowhere. And it was a gem. And there's other things that I found that was elusive on the Internet. Now it's available. So when I say, I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I'm very sincere. There should be markers about you. And if people like me don't appreciate you, and if we keep um, looking to the athletes and the artisans and the musicians, and they have a role, but we don't support you, there's not enough black authors, there's definitely not enough black children's book authors. And... And and I don't want our people, and I'm talking about you, to be reduced to just talking about a slave agenda in the white man's version, being told this is the only way you can make a living. And this is the only and way I guess without, I agree with we you 100%. I agree with so you 100%. You up, we need to support you in your work when you do something in line of telling a story like Benjamin Quirles, and you have done it. You know what I'm saying? But well, Benjamin Quarles, though, let's. I, I agree with you 100%. And then the piece is about. Well, I mean, I agree with you 100% about recognizing the work of people, and they shouldn't be under this idea of victimization. But what Benjamin Quarles did, because before Benjamin Quarles wrote Black Abolition, um, Abolitionist, when people thought of abolitionist, they thought about you know these people who were benevolent, you know. Um, um, people, um, um, you know, our white brothers and sisters. That's what they thought. Mm-hmm. Now, what ended up happening when Quarles basically produces his book? Not he. he what, one thing he shows is that how much blacks in the Northeast supported people like um, um, William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell and Wendell Phillips, and how their newspapers, mm-hmm. their subscribers, were actually people who you know gotten through the black community and the like sort. But you know, reality mm-hmm. is. You know, abolitionism would have never got started if a black, if an enslaved person wouldn't put one foot in front of the other. And so what happens is, so, I mean, in that conversation, right, you know, but what happens is that so he now, by writing his book, Black Abolitionist, he interjected a voice. And what Brian Stevenson is trying to do, just like Ida B. Wells did, is inject a voice. 
because without Quarles's book, even now when you watch the um, when you watch documentaries about abolitionists, when I ask my students, name me aboli- a famous abolitionist, right? I mean, I say name me. I mean, I say first of all, you know, name me a famous abolitionist. They rarely mention blacks. I mean, right. most people do not consider Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass to be an abolitionist. They consider him to be an escaped slave. Okay, that's number right. one. Right. And then two. Mm-hmm. They don't see that the person who ran away is an abolitionist. Before, so that so what happens is what Quarles done was that he injected a voice. What Stevenson's work is doing is injecting a voice. It's like Michelle Alexander said. You mentioned, um, I mean, well, I'm mentioning, the, I think you mentioned it earlier, the new Jim Crow. And what happens is, like she yeah. says in the preface of her book, she said before before she started talking about no one saw. This incarcerate this war on drugs as a civil rights issue, not mm-hmm. even the civil rights organizations. She said this. She opens and says, "Who really even on the night that President Barack Obama was basically, you know, celebrating his victory, she walked out and she saw somebody eagle died on the ground. Who pays attention to even that to see a black male getting arrested? It's nothing. That's almost like dotted in the landscape." And so she calls right. the That's question, she, but, but see, that was an issue. Mass incarceration, right, was a, an issue that people weren't even talking about. And so now she brings it up with the new Jim Crow. She injects a voice. She talks about the war on drugs. She doesn't give you a solution. She doesn't give you a solution. She says, hey, these are the things that, you know, the, no, no, I mean, what, what she, just, she just says, look, you can inform yourself. You can know somebody in the community. What you can do is, you know, I mean, you can, you know, she, you know, she, 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 no, she doesn't give a, she doesn't give an answer. She just gives proposals. Okay. So because again. No, Ida B. Wells had a call of action. She told the, the black people to boycott. She told them to move to Oklahoma. She had a call of action behind everything she did. Oh, um, Alexander. I mean, Michelle Alexander has a call of action. And prior to Michelle Alexander, we had on the show, and I went to a screening, and and um, produced two screenings for the for the film by Sam Pollard, "Slavery by Another Name." But the the thing is, the stories have been out there. Um, she. You know, I guess because well, we black men look at black. he looks at the historical piece, but I, Michelle Alexander he looked at the historic piece about yeah. use of convict labor and the like sort, and he said that you know, yeah. hey, look, this was this. But what Michelle Alexander did, and that's why she opens it up. No civil rights group was looking at it. No human rights group was looking at it. Now her mm-hmm. work is akin well, to no, no, Wells's no, work. The, 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 if you go back to the Million March, um, the first Million, million Man March. March. They talked about I mean, we people were talking I, I about being I, locked I up. Oh, no, they were no, no, yeah, but I mean, no, but they were talking. But but she was she focused on how the what the war. I mean, we know that people were being. I mean, they were being you know locked. But this what this war on drugs did and the unequal sentencing and how pretty much like coaxes a case for reparation and housing in Chicago was pretty much like, look, let's look at this mass incarceration on the way on the federal level. Let's look at what happened okay. on a federal level and have that. So she did a calling, but she basically put it like this. People could have been angry about being black people being locked up, but she criminalized mass incarceration, just like Ida B. Wells criminalized lynching. I mean, they, I mean that – you know, so what happens, and that's like to me what Brian Stevenson is doing is he's criminalizing lynching. I mean, he's he's continuing Wells' conversation. 
Huh? We know that we don't need to criminalize lynching. We know that it's violent. And we know that oh, my goodness, you would be amazed. I mean, I'm going to tell you, please look at something, I mean, really, because like I was trying to tell you about the story of Luther Hubbard, no, you said we don't have to do that. Yes, we do. Because, again, okay. you have people who justify, just, I mean, you talked about Trayvon Martin just a second ago. There were, we had a debate in America if a person should wear a hoodie. He was criminal. He, a dead man was criminalized. He was this man. This boy was lynched by someone who was told not to do anything. And Dad says, "I mean, he was. He was. He." We had a conversation of if a person has a right to, if a black kid has a right to wear a hoodie. That was our conversation. So yes, we do need to keep having a conversation about how are you criminalizing these bodies? Oh yes. Oh yes, ma'am. Yes. We're going to move on because I really want to talk to you about this last subject, you know, in a few hours. Okay. Um, the electoral college, the electors are going to cast their votes in each area, in each state at their capital, right? Yeah, hold and on. We what, have, before we get to that, before we get to that question, I want to just say there is a marker that's going to be, I mean, there is a new museum. They got the two. They got the lynching museum. And they also have the museum that's going to be called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And both of them are going to be opened in um, Montgomery in April of 2017. Montgomery, Alabama, 2017. Mm -hmm. And the museum is called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And they're looking at the legalized system and the extra-legal because that's what you call lynching, extra legal, meaning outside of the law, extra legal um, uh, um, uh, history in America. So they're looking at um, enslavement. It's, it's called from enslavement to mass incarceration. Okay, okay. Um, mm-hmm. And so now you, the electoral college. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Well, let me just say about this year um, lynching laws. Kevin Garnett, and I want to get my husband to, to qualify me. Kevin Garnett was sentenced for lynching, being part of a lynch mob. And they got little um, Iverson on some of the same laws. So I just thought, thought, you know, that it's ironic that the laws that we did finally put in place, that they're being used against us. And, again, We don't have any lynch um, lynch laws in America. We have hate crime in America in 1968-69. They end up creating like a, like a hate crime, and then we actually okay. added more onto it when we had the James Bird and Matthew Shepard. So we have hate crime laws. Okay, mm-hmm. let me read this to you. I just found it. And um, mm-hmm. then we're going to go. This, is, this interview is going to be broken up into like three different shows. I just want you to know. <laughs> so I'm going to have to edit mostly. I'm going to edit most of my comments out and then... Packages. No, I think that they were the ones that's rich. <laughs> okay, Go let's on. See. Mm-hmm. Let me. Okay, so after getting arrested in a, in a race riot, Kevin Garnett drove himself to escape rural South Carolina and became the highest paid player in NBA history. When Kevin Garnett was a junior in high school in uh, Maudland, South Carolina, a race riot broke out. Garnett was arrested and charged with second degree lynching even though all accounts indicated he was there but not involved in the melee. Eventually, his record was expunged, but that incident not only struck with Garnett, it drove him. 
He was not going to let others determine his fate. Lynching is 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 disgusting. It's despicable, especially you know coming from your perspective, everything that you've been teaching tonight. Yeah, because what I'm saying you is that, that they had they had the dry the Dreyer anti lynching bill, but it's a bill. I just know I want you to say this in 2017. We have hate crime. Hate crime handles ethnic intimidation. But when it came down to the Senate made a, a formal apology because it never mm-hmm. see in order for something to become law, it has to go through the House and the Senate. And so what happens mm-hmm. is if you're on the computer, if you look up the mm-hmm. Senate apology for lynching, it tells you it mm-hmm. never I mean, um, it, it well, never passed legislation. The, the second degree lynching. I don't know where that came from, but I, I know when I heard it, I was appalled. I'm like, nobody even died. How could they? Okay, that was in 2005. Me? It was in 2005 when Senator Obama, I mean, he was Obama, President Obama was a senator. And what happens mm-hmm. is at the very, um, if you look at it, it, it clearly states that, it, you know, we never. Um, you know, um, passed an anti-lynching. Now, again, we have anti-hate bills, I mean, crime bills, Mm -hmm. but we don't have, that was something that, and I think that's very telling in America, but that's a whole different show, I mean, for a whole different Mm -hmm. piece, but we do have hate Mm -hmm. crime bills, and one of them, the reason that they included a man by the name of James Berg, who was um, dragged Mm -hmm. in Texas, um, in the back of a pickup truck because they include him in that particular um, bill to sort of talk about the, the, the racial implications of that. But I say mm-hmm. that to say, I mean, so tomorrow, I mean, what I say that is to say that people made different states may have passed, um, because I told you that oftentimes mm-hmm. if, if it doesn't cross um, state lines, a state handles mm-hmm. its own murder cases. So different right. states mm-hmm. may have various laws, but federally, mm-hmm. we only have mm-hmm. anti um, the, the, um, the hate crime bills, right? We don't have okay. necessarily any anti lynching. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you wrapped that up beautifully. Now, can we talk about this electoral process and um, the three fifths clause and gerrymandering and redistricting? Okay, but I again, I'm not an expert on the electoral college. I'm well, really you not. Can, mm-hmm. you, but you can just, you know, just what we need to do is document what's going on from a historical point of view, not from so much an educational one, but it's a historical moment in history. Um, you know, it is American history, and it's going to affect African Americans adversely, I believe. So, you know, how do you feel about this this electoral college and this, this vote that's gonna take place tomorrow? What did what did you hear on the news about? You know, all the um stories surrounding the vote tomorrow. Well, I mean, Hillary Clinton received the popular vote. But the the United States is a republic. And as a republic we're governed by laws. And the law for us, is manifest in the Constitution. And what happened is the Electoral College is in um, was is a process. It's not a place. A lot of people think it's actually people go to some place, but it's really a process. And what it is is that it is the compromise, if you will, um, between an election of the president from Congress as a, in the popular and in, in, in the popular vote, so the electoral college is like 
um it's it's the if you will it's the uh what do you uh, like it's a um it's a the in between it's the it's well, I don't want to say checks and balances. I'm just going to say it's a more of a referee, if you will, before I go checks and balances. And so what happens is that um, so it's in the middle. But in the middle, in essence, what the electoral college can do is that it can go against the popular vote. Now, in the electoral college today, we have roughly 538 electors, and the person has to get 270 electoral votes to become the president and how we get the um and how we get the um the how many people are in different areas is based on their population and so what happens is in a um in the electoral college it's pretty much this process of where you know a group this 538 people Right, they're going to get together and they're going to cast their votes, and then whoever gets that. And the one thing about the the problem I consider with the electoral college is that the winner basically takes all. That's the problem with the constitution. It doesn't allow people to split. So, like for example, you know, um, and that's why we don't have a third party system in the United States. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. because it's very difficult um we have this two party system and with this two party system what it does is it tell people cast your vote here or cast it there. So we we're looking at 300 and roughly 350 million um people who are in America and these electoral people who are these 538 elector electors you know they're now casting that 270 votes to determine who our president is. And again, the votes don't have to necessarily match the popular vote. And the way that the constitution was actually created because in the initial constitution senators were appointed, right? So you're looking mm-hmm. at and so again because you're going to Congress Right. This is what the electoral college is is looking at. You know this balance between Congress and the popular vote, and so what happens is that, um, and so you know, I mean, the the Constitution itself is a document that um, that that helps, in essence, to to not rush the masses. I mean, the the, the fever or the um, the spirit of the times. You know, that's what the Electoral College is supposed to sort of buffer the republic against the, you know, the whims of its population. So you have, you know, you may, for example, get someone who, you know, just like we've seen just in our last election, right, you know, they can say some things that are, you know, egregious, right, and so, mm-hmm. you know, and and so what's the best word um that's not necessarily supporting you know um the full humanity of if all mm-hmm. people and um and if they come along and so in in actuality the electoral college is supposed to work where um the president elect trump is not supposed to be in office, you know? <laughs> but in this case, I believe that you know sexism in America is great and rapid. So, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's you know that you know it, in essence this anti-human rights agenda is um, mm-hmm. secondary to a, um, uh, a sex 
I mean, it's um, it's secondary to a sexist agenda in America. So, so tomorrow with the electoral college, you have these people that's going to go and cast their vote, and they're going to cast it um, for. You have some people coming out and saying they may not um, cast it for our um, what we uh, who we understand to be our president elect. Hmm. Doc, what are some of the reasons why some people um, don't want to cast? their vote, um, or some people think that the, the electors shouldn't cast their vote for Trump. In, in essence, um, Donald Trump's um, political directness was an affront <laughs> to the established um, political way of, ha- I mean, political establishment. So people don't want to sort of, you know, cast their votes because of all of the public things. He had the audacity, not necessarily to... Um, I mean, that he endorsed. Some things he didn't say, he just endorsed it. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to sort of cast their votes because, remember, if they're in um, if some of the the, the people who are in the um, the electors, they can be just regular Mm -hmm. citizens. They're not necessarily these established politicians. And so what happens, though, um, but the established politicians, they're going to have to, you know, I mean, they have to look at their constituency. Like if you're in California, you're not going to go out and say, oh, I'm supporting Donald Trump. Or if you're in some of these, you know, very liberal counties, you know, like if you're in New York, you're not New York City, you're not Donald Trump, Donald Trump. But what happens is Mm -hmm. if you are in rural Alabama, you know, you're going to be Donald Trump, you know. So what happens is that – then again, the 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 reason is that people believe that Trump is divisive. Can you talk about the Russian connection? Well, that is the okay. Here's here's the nuance of that. So the the argument is that the Russians, the CIA, CIA the Central Intelligence Agency, has said that the Russians interfered in our election process that they hacked into our production process. The, the, the concern now, and, and so, you know, you have people who are saying just how in President Obama, Barack Obama, you know, he's like, okay, look, you know, let, we can't ignore this. We can't ign- dismiss this. But you have to understand that the people who support Trump, they don't believe mm-hmm. anything that the federal government says. So in essence, it's <laughs> almost right. like I mean. So it's like it's like basically um, the 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 federal government is talking to Hillary and Bernie Sanders supporters, you know. But right. Donald Trump supporters are not necessarily caring about because they consider them to be the conspiracy of along with the mainstream media. So for the most mm-hmm. part, I mean, they look at that and go, you know, just like um, President Elect in his. In his very humorous way, he go, ah, I'm not. We're not studying that. That's just a lie. That's just something that they're creating to create a distraction to try to delegitimize and decredit and delegitimize me. And um, hey, we won, people. I mean, one of the things that he um, said the other day, which was an interesting, you know, he was like, look, you know, we won. I mean, he's actually he just said it mm-hmm. yesterday when he said, hey, look, you mm-hmm. know, look, we said those chants. You know, we said we were going to do all that stuff, but look, we're through with that. That's done. That. Let's move on. And so, in essence, the when you sort of when you look at the the the, the official federal government voice so far has said that the Russians hacked in our um, in our election process, but in reality, right, you have a, a mm-hmm. set of Americans who believe that, 
and you have another set of Americans who do not believe that because they believe that the federal government is untrustworthy anyway because look at what they told us about Benghazi. I mean, you have people who believe in fake news. I mean, that's the reason that they had that guy go into that pizza place and, you know, kill people. I mean, so they don't necessarily trust the CIA anyway. Did he kill so them? I don't think he killed anybody. I think he just shot at them. I mean, he shot up. I mean, you know, yeah, he shot up people. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he right. shot into the building. Uh, but the reality is, right. he was motivated by fake news, something that wasn't. Mm-hmm. Even. But see, guess what? Can I tell you something? For the yes. president-elect supporters, they're not going to necessarily see it as fake news, even though we say it's fake news. They're going to see mm-hmm. it as though, oh, they their stuff was becoming so exposed that they end up moving location. I mean, so, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the problem with, you know, sort of, you know, all of these different voices of um, Mm -hmm. authority and and authenticity. You know, 20 years Mm -hmm. ago before the internet or um, or 10 years ago before, you know, really the explosion of internet and even five years when we're now beginning to see so people can just produce and produce and produce, you know, we had like, um, you know, certain authentic voices to of authority. Mm-hmm. And so people relied mm-hmm. on those voices. I mean, so, you know, we're not in the days of Walter Cronkite or even the um, – um, old school Dan Wather. You know, we're in the even age, bloggers like the, myself. Yeah, right? you know, we're you not. Know, we're in that. We're in a whole different. We're in a whole different um, class now, and because of that, right? Um, and then now, because mm-hmm. um, the president is elect. I mean, think about what happened within the last eight years. They, um, the mm-hmm. federal government, did not want um, President Barack Obama to have a phone, his own phone. Mm-hmm. They saw it as a security mm-hmm. risk. Now we we right. know that President Trump has already told us he's going to have his own Twitter account. He's going to be tweeting <laughs> and everything else just like he does now. So in the course of eight years, how information is disseminated becomes very important. Like, um, you know, like a lot of people, hopefully this is going to encourage people to read the Constitution mm-hmm. and to realize mm-hmm. that we don't live in a democracy. I mean, that's what the people really need to get that through their head. We live in a republic that has democratic principles, but we live in a republic, and a republic is governed by laws. And that's why these candidates that say, and that's why I was saying, let's go for the people, why people are going to cast their vote for Donald Trump, okay? Because Mm -hmm. these are people who say law and order, and law and order in a republic, that's it. That, I mean, the republic mm-hmm. is law. So what happens, mm-hmm. I mean, they're governed by laws, I'm sorry. The republic is governed mm-hmm. by laws. And so people are going to go in, and even though they may not like the the um, the personality of Trump, right, they're going to still, mm-hmm. they believe in the integrity of the republic, and that's going to make them cast their vote for Trump. So, right, I right. mean, you know, so it's like they're not going off of, um, they're not stemming their they're 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 not stemmed from passion, they're stemmed mm-hmm. from process. So the electoral mm-hmm. college is a process. And we're gonna and they're gonna follow that process tomorrow. You remind me you remind me of a poster that says slavery was legal, lynching, you know, so many ways of legal. They list a whole bunch of atrocities that were once legal. And and that's what you're saying in essence that 
um, justice um, is meaningless if something is is in justified or unjustified actions are legal, then that's the law of the land. You know, like I that's hear it. people always say, oh, you know what, well, we were in the part, I would ask Christians, you know, churches and things of that nature, when I went to do research, you know, what? where's the records for your um, Underground Railroad movement and your involvement? Oh, we 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 follow the law. I was like, but your church, isn't God supposed to be the law of the land, not civil rights and not civilian laws? And they would say, well, it was legal, and so as a church, we had the right to participate. You know, so I just yeah, I teach my students that I I teach my students that um, Mm -hmm. law is not about justice. Mm -hmm. Law is about order. Law is not about justice. It never has been. But to go to your example about slavery, slavery is immoral to take someone and to you know, um, deny their humanity or to subordinate their to make their humanity subordinate to yours. That's immortal, but mm-hmm. hey, you can legalize it, um, and it was a legal system, you know. Um, to mm-hmm. say, you know, um, so it's not about you take the case, you take cases of of women, for example, you know, who were abused um, by their husbands. Let's say, I mean, that's white and black, and all women who were abused by their women, I mean, their husbands in the eighteenth, um, nineteenth, and twentieth century. And um, for the most part, you know, the law was, you know, was in place that at one time women were property of their husbands and the laws were in place, you know, to say, okay, which parent is more financially, you know, respond, I mean, um, you know, financially able to take care of a child. And so, but the ways that the laws were made is that women had certain, I mean, had restrictions about, you know, where they could enter, how far they could go. And so, you know, I mean, it's not a, a Again, I'm saying that to say, you know, on one hand, you have these restrictions about, you know, how people can have access to to make themselves, you know, more viable in these type of, you know, um, cases. But yet still, you know, um, but in this particular piece, you know, when it comes down mm-hmm. to, you know, seeing, you know, women as, you know, property of some way or, you know, an extension of a mm-hmm. male's property or his extension of his estate, you know, they, you know, suffered, you know, um, uh, marginalization. So that said and done, the law has always been about order, where things go. You know, I mean, think about you know a purse. There's a story um, that I I I I I, I want to bring it up. It's called um, 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 Celia the Slave, and um, mm-hmm. she was a person who um, this was during. In the 1850s, you know, she was a slave, and she um, she was owned by a man by the name of Robert Newsom. And Robert Newsom mm-hmm. starts to rape her at the age of 14. He rapes her for five years. And so she ends up killing him, and she burns him and, and the like sort. But during the trial, everyone sort of knows that she was abused. His kids, his, his daughters knew that she was abused. Right? Everyone knew this, but the law said that Robert Newsom could do whatever he wanted to to his property. Even if it was egregious, even if it was egregious, like in this case of raping this, you know, he was in his 40s and she was a 14 year old, but the law said 
that mm-hmm. he a man a, a property owner could do whatever he wanted to to his property. It, right. So, uh, uh, and when you sort of look at that case, I mean, that gives you a good understanding that the law is about order. The law is not about justice. And so, okay. so uh, with that said I, and I done. Share, mm-hmm. Okay, let me just get this in real quick. I shared that story on Facebook, and I have to tell you, I was shocked that it went to court. I, I didn't know she had that 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 much of a, a right that it would even go to court. And so I was really, you know, and I've been studying um, the Underground Railroad for over 10 years, and I, you know, it just, and that, when I learned that story maybe about four or five years ago, I was really Well, I believe it went that, to court because she was pregnant, though. I mean, it went to court because she was pregnant. It went to court because, and it was still a little shock to me, it went to court because, they wanted to find her guilty of murdering him. She she burnt him up, and they had accused other people, her husband, and um. Well, no, she didn't have a husband. I mean, no, no. The re, at the yeah, very end, they went to court mm-hmm. because she was supposed to be murdered immediately. Right. But mm-hmm. because she was pregnant, they had to really, you know, I mean, that the law had to now sort of come in and, you know, make some adjustments there. You bring up a very good point. If she's pregnant, then that baby is worth money. It's valuable, right? They can't kill. Yes. Mm-hmm. They may want to kill her. She may have been covered under insurance, right? Because, you know, many many um, enslaved people um, were covered under insurance because, um, they anticipated that we would revolt, that we would kill them. You know, they, they knew exactly who we were and what the risk were. So now it gets complicated because you can't kill another piece of property. So I think what happened in this story is that, um, and, and I'm trying to think of another story that uh, brings us home, in that case with Celia, remember, she couldn't testify. So let's keep that in mind that it wasn't like she was testifying. Everyone else was testifying on right. in the state or on her behalf, just like it was with Margaret Gardner. Mm-hmm. And see, I, I'm learning, I just recently learned this summer the complexity of these cases that went to court, just like with the Bell case, you know, the, the film Bell, um, mm-hmm. the, the slave ship. The, these court cases were about the insurance policies. It wasn't about like we're like you know like what you're saying is not about justice. They already knew the order of the, the hierarchy and what was going to take place. It was mainly about them suing the the insurance company to get their money, right? So in the Nat Turner case, most of the owners, the slavers were reimbursed by the um, insurance company as long as the enslaved person, the revolter, um, was brought back alive. And as you said, and, you, and you're bringing it all together for me right now, due process from the 13th, 14th, and 15th, right? As long as they follow the law and gave these individuals so-called due process, then they can get their insurance money. But if they went ahead and they killed the revolters in the case of the Nat Turner raid, um, if they killed them, 
they couldn't get paid. And this story I read from the Turner story is that they went um, all the way up to, I think, the Supreme Court because most of the people got their money, but three or four of them who were so angry, they killed them right on the spot, and they never got reimbursed. So, it, you know, when you first read it, you wow, would Matt Turner people going to get justice? And when you get, cause you read it even deeper, like, oh, no, this isn't about justice. This is about them getting paid. You know, validating I mean, and, and it's, and it's about it's about it's about the order. And I do want to say something right. about Celia's case because you mentioned it, just to go back just mm-hmm. a little bit. You mentioned why did it go to court. You remember you have to remember when that case took place. It was in, um, in uh, again, I mentioned the 1850s earlier, but it was in 54. This was right after the um, Dred Scott decision when all of this went down. And so she killed mm-hmm. him in the summer of 55. The Kansas Nebraska Act passed in 54. So you had people who were um, pro slavery, but then you also had people who were pro abolition. And so basically, what Celia's case represents is like basically the testing of two wheels. I mean, really, that's why it really had. Then, of course, you know, she was pregnant. Like I mentioned earlier, she was pregnant. That's one of the reasons. But then also the other reason is that you know this was a. I mean, this case was one like a hotbed case. I mean, it was a hot case in the sense that it allowed them to legally argue for or against slavery. And in this case, I mean, you know, um, women um, being, I mean, she was a girl. She was 14 years old. And just like um, poor Sally Hemmings with Thomas Jefferson, um, 14 years old. But, hey, look, they are their master's property. So you got in slavery, and slavery shows you that um, um, laws are not about being just. They're They're about order. When we look at segregation, there you see examples that laws were not meant to be um of justice they were meant to be of order that's why people would kill people you know if they stepped out of line or they didn't know their place so what, and so what, what and does so mean when you say um you have the life and you have uh right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness what is that how does that fit into the scheme? Well, that at this time, as chattel property as Celia was in 1855, she did not have mm-hmm. the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. She was a cow. She was a piece of furniture. She was a television. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm trying to? She was well, chattel property. Mm-hmm. So she was equate. Well, she she was, was a. Was, hmm? was that up until Dred Scott case? Well, no. This was before Dred. Scott. Her case. Her case is before Dred Scott. Two years before Dred Scott. Okay. All right. So okay. she's before, and then right. Dred Scott comes along. But again, remember, until the well, until the Thirteenth Amendment, which abolishes slavery with the exception of the punishment of crime, the Fourteenth Amendment mm-hmm. that defines citizenship, and the Fifteenth Amendment that gives right black males the right to vote. Prior to then, black people were chattel property; they were objects. So the the mm-hmm. the, the mantra the mantra of well. The black people in the South, they were um, property. They right. were chattel property. So life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness did not apply to them. And then in the North, because blacks were marginalized and segregated, because we know that segregation started in the American North, not in the South. The South would perfect it 50 years later. But, you know, the whole idea of the minstrel shows and Jim Crow <laughs> started in the North. You know, so blacks were marginalized mm-hmm. even in the antebellum period. So that idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it only applied 
uh, to a very limited case. I mean, I mean, very limitedly for African Americans. I mean, they, some, they couldn't go to but to certain colleges. You know, like Oberlin was accepting of African Americans, but many colleges mm-hmm. were not. I mean, certain occupations they wouldn't let African Americans, you know, um, pursue freely. And so, what happens is that so even those who were, you know, in the um, the, the areas that um, slavery was practiced limitedly, because we know that slavery, you know, even up to the Civil War was in most of the northern states still. And so what happens is that it just wasn't to the level of that in the South. And so what happens is that, you know, even for those um for those states where, you know, slavery was, you know, either through gradual emancipation or some level of it, um, that we know that, you know, blacks and that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was always had a limited basis, you know, for, um, um, and that was just real. And so, again, it wasn't about, when you look at the story of this American history, this American history, as it applies to a nation, you had a population in which you had several populations, including poor whites. You know, that whole idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that was more of a dream and an ideal. It wasn't reality. Mm-hmm. Just like it's not reality for all in today, today. It's, still, it's like an ideal. You know, it's something that we aspire towards. It's like it's more no. so just like the Electoral College. It's a process. It's not a place. Okay. And I just wanted to say this. Um, three years ago, I interviewed um, a professor, Sanam and Mensha. I can't pronounce her name. And she wrote a book about the three hundred about three hundred slaves who sued for their freedom and won. So these are the people that led um, up led that were the catalyst behind the Dred Scott case. Because you have so many black people who did use the court system successfully with the one of the once free forever free. So she she came to the Schomburg and she um, signed book had a book signing and talked. But yeah, um, one of the most so, famous cases I love. I just have to mention. Um, you can Google her. Her name is Elizabeth Freedom. I mean Freeman. Elizabeth Freeman, mm-hmm. but she picks up that name. She go, I mean, her her other name was Ma Bet, um, and it's spelled M U M B E T T. And what happened is she was in Boston. Her name is Ma Bet. M U M M U M B as in boy E T T. And okay. she's also known as Elizabeth Freeman. Well, um, <laughs> during the age of the Revolutionary Period, she was in Boston, and she heard a reading of the State Constitution of Massachusetts, and she basically heard it and said, hold on. And their words read something like the Declaration of Independence about all men being created equal. She said, that applies to me. She sued successfully. Her case was one that helped to, you know, um, let lead to the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts. So this was a black woman who heard those mm. words, and they were applicable to her. And her name is she ended up with, um, um, she ended up she's um, she ended up um, renaming herself Elizabeth Freeman. It's a beautiful story, I'm, and it's um I'm beautiful, beautiful story. I, I, mm-hmm. Her face looks familiar. 
I think I shared it, but I don't remember the story. I don't remember the name. But this has been great. We covered a lot. Now I'm up to seven different shows. You've been on the show for almost three hours. Um, <laughs> well, you know, and, my biggest uh, thing is that tomorrow, if we can learn several things, and I think that mm-hmm. this is the way that we can empower ourselves. In another program, we talked about lynching. The reality is, mm-hmm. in order for something to a bill to become law, it has to be approved by Congress. You have to, it has to go through the House of Representatives, and then it has to go through the Senate. Anything can go mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of things go through the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives only serve two years. However, the senators, right, they get six mm. That's Constitution. Now and that's, so the, okay. the, the House of they, Representatives they, they, are constantly for running order. for power. They're constantly running for office if you only have two years, whereas the Senate, they get six years. And remember, before the 17th, I mean, before the 17th Amendment, I think it is, that's the one that we, yeah, it's the 17th Amendment is when we direct elect senators directly. Before then, and that was in the 1900s that was passed, um, and what happens is before then, senators were appointed. And so, you know, you got mm-hmm. the senators are like powerhouses. I mean, that's why you only get two of them each state. You know, House of Representatives is dependent upon your population. But the problem with the House of Representatives is that they, not the problem, but the issue is that they're constantly running for office because they have to run every so mm-hmm. many, you know, very quickly, every two years. 